Welcome to an Eye for the Light podcast with Newton and Co. I'm going to start by introducing my co-host, David Newton. David, good morning. Good morning, Chris. Good to, uh, good to be here again. I hope you're very well. Uh, today, uh, we have got an incredibly interesting photographer. I, I know I say this all the time, but uh, this is particularly interesting uh, for me. Uh, we have Martin Hartley, who is, uh, I don't know, are we going to call you an extreme explorer, photographer, who shoots some spectacular portraits and, and lots of cold place polary type things? Would that be a fair assessment, Martin? I think photography would be enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Martin is someone who uses a camera. We're going to find out the rest shortly. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, welcome, Martin. It's nice to have you here. Hello, Chris. Nice to see you again. Yes. So let's, let's kick off um, by just finding out how you started. When was the first time you picked up a camera and did you immediately get a, the photography bug? That's a good question. Uh, first time I picked up a camera was, I think it was Christmas time. I was five years old and I had an adventure kit and it was a, a water bottle, a compass and a pen knife, which had been removed. <laughs> and a plastic camera that had 12 frames of black and white film in it. I still have the camera today, actually. And I remember taking all the pictures of my sister and her friend skipping down the street. I completely forgot about it, gave him on the camera back, forgot about it. And then two weeks later, mum gave him an envelope with his black and white photographs in. And I was just mesmerised because I'd forgotten about the event and all of a sudden I was holding it in my hand. So I think maybe subconsciously something happened then and I realised without realising <laughs> the magic of photography, which is you can you can go back in time and... Uh, along with that comes nostalgia. Even age five, I thought, oh my God, I didn't realise you could actually do that because I was there on the, in that scene, taking those pictures, and then that scene reappeared as if by magic um, a few weeks later. So I think maybe subconsciously that was my very first experience of taking photographs, and that might, might have stayed with me. It sounds like, like it did. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like that kind of leads in very nicely to our next great question, which is, when did you decide that it was going to be your career? Was it you kind of understood at that point, but did you get the real drive later on or was it something that grew organically? That's an interesting question, which I've looked at many times over, over the last few years specifically. When I was at school, I didn't realise that photography was a job. I thought photographers were people who photographed babies and weddings and all the other pictures that appeared in magazines and posters were taken by people who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And my focus in that, at that time was on wildlife images and nature photography. And I didn't have any understanding that was an actual job. And I grew up in a diet of James Herriot. Most of my young grown-up thinking was, I want to be a vet, so I want to be a farm vet and live the life that James Herriot had led. And then I went to my careers advisor. That was for the most useless profession at the time there ever was, because he just said, why don't you be a nurse instead? Because you're not going to make the grades to be a vet. We thought about being a nurse. And that really put me off all my previous thinking. And I thought, oh, my God, what, what am I going to do now if I can't be a vet? And then I started investigating photography careers. And the ones that I was drawn to were forensic photographer scientific photographer and medical photographer because I quite enjoy science and I thought I can combine science with photography and then the going whizzing around in the background was my dad was a keen amateur and 
he gave me all his own hand-me-down cameras. So between the ages of, I suppose, 10 and 15, I had two or three of his old SLR cameras that he'd give me when he'd upgraded his kit. So I was a keen photographer, but still didn't realise it was an actual career. So I was a bit lost for quite between sort of 15 and 17. And then I entered Young Wildlife Photographer of the Year competition with a, <laughs> looking back, it's the, the irony is just astonishing. I came specially commended in Young Wildlife, Wildlife Photographer of the Year in 1985 with a photograph of some frozen ice that appeared on a cliff near where I lived. And I went down to Natural History Museum, met David Attenborough, met Sir Peter Scott and Heather Angel, uh, who at the time was a, an amazing flower photographer, I think. Um, yes, she was. She was, yeah. uh, based, still based down in the New Forest, I think. Yeah. I met Tony Soper, a TV presenter. And I, saw, I found myself amongst all my sort of childhood heroes who were presenters or wildlife or nature photographers, which was a, quite an explosive event for me in terms of realising that photography was actually something you can do and make a living from. So I think that was probably the turning point. So you're, you're, you're known as a, an adventure photographer, but it sounds like the photography came first. Is that correct? I think they, the photography and the adventure were in parallel from day one. So living, being brought up in the foothills of uh, the foothills, <laughs> it's not the Himalayas exactly, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your, your accent is not Nepalese. <laughs> no, raised in the swampland of the Lancashire Moors. <laughs> More accurate. <laughs> wandering around there and spent a lot of time on my own, wandering in the foothills. The foothills, I did it again. They probably they felt like foothills to me. So it's wandering prosaic. around, it's prosaic. We'll let you have it. Okay, it is. Yeah, those boggy, knee-deep swamps of dead sheep and peat. Yeah, then I was always interested in hill walking, and that later became rock climbing. Then that became winter ice climbing, Scotland, and then that evolved into mountaineering in the European Alps. And then by the age of twenty-four. I'd been to the Himalayas to climb a small mountain there. And all, all the time I was using photography as a as a hobby until speaking out of turn there. So photography and adventure were just in parallel. If I'm going somewhere interesting, I'd always take my camera. That's the bottom line. That, those two things never became separate entities. From a photographic perspective, you know, you talked about meeting Heather Angel and, and David Attenborough, all of those heroes, but was there someone photographic that inspired you, gave you, I don't know, an idea, discovering that photography could be a career, but someone that inspired your photographic journey in that way? Yeah, there's, there's two photographers. One most people will never have heard of, and the other one they might have. So Stephen Dalton was a, an amazing inspiration to me i picked up a book called i think it's called in flight one of his first books high speed flash photography of bats and insects i could not believe that a photograph could capture something moving so quickly in the dark and i never understood how he could be in the right place at the right time to photograph um a swallow drinking water i didn't realize there were setups and that doesn't even matter it was just that was one of the very first books i picked up probably age 10 i reckon and was just mystified by how it was possible for a photographer to be stood there by a pond with his camera in his hand, waiting for a, a bat or a, a swallow or a dragonfly to come past. That was something that really amazed me, literally amazed me. And the other photographer who I warmed to very early on, which is probably the most influential adventure photographer in my life, was a chap called Galen Rowell, American photographer, who was famous for his landscapes 
and also his action photography of uh, mountaineering. And he was a pioneer in photography. And the, uh, he has a book called The Art of Adventure Photography, which is a collection of articles he'd written and they're published in American photography magazines. And there's one particular article which I really latched onto, which has influenced all my photography. And it was about pre-visualisation, which was thinking of a picture before it happened and building that idea in your head of how to go out and look for a picture that you've already created in your head. And that is something I think I've always used with all my photography and my expeditions is getting a shot list together in my head and then going out looking for those scenarios and waiting for them to happen, anticipating them in effect. That's very interesting. It's something that both David and I are very passionate about, this this whole idea of that you don't just take a camera out and look through the viewfinder and find something that you actually have the idea in your head before you even set off. One example that wasn't pre-visualisation, which in one of his articles, you know Gunnarell's famous picture of the rainbow over the famous temple in Tibet, and there's a rainbow hitting the monastery, and he was out giving a workshop in Tibet, and he said, the rainbow, if you run over there now, we will get the rainbow hitting the monastery. And nobody went with him because <laughs> they couldn't be bothered. So he sprinted over there and got the shot that nobody else did. And I suppose everyone was tired. It was the end of the day. Who knows what was going on? But I, even reading that, I was thinking, well, why wouldn't you go follow a photographer to go and get a great picture? So mm-hmm. I think there's a, it, that was an interesting point there where there's photographers who will do anything to get the shot and photographers who just wait for the shot to come to them. Yeah. Um, Galen Rowell has a, he has a great quote, probably one of his more famous quotes about sunrises and sunsets. The, the enlightened photographer realises there's only one sunrise and one sunset a day and make sure they never miss either. Which <laughs> quite a few of both, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, every time, every, I, I, I love the quote and every time I think about it, I feel very unenlightened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a bigger message about seizing the day in that. Um, yes, I think there might be. Um, I mean, he, so, he of course started with, with film, and I believe you did too. You started with film. So, how was the transition to the digital technology, and how has it changed what you do and how you work? I'm thinking particularly of you working in cold climates. That's a really good question, Chris. I was working in London at the time when that the digital transition started. And I absolutely hated it and resisted it for as long as I possibly could. And then eventually, in 1999, I was given a digital camera by Canon to go and document a first ascent in Borneo, a massive 800-metre rock climb in a deep, dark canyon on Mount Kinabalu, Borneo. And I took my film camera, my Mamiya 645, with a lot of transparency film, the Provia 100, I think, which is my go-to film all the time. And this shitty little Canon compact digital thing that had a file size of two megabytes. <laughs> it only shot JPEGs. I mean, I'm being unkind. It, you know, it was a shit camera, even on any level of digital because I couldn't, they weren't prepared to give me a, an actual decent one. So I had a little ton of compact, which was useful in that it meant I could take pictures and send them back, because we had satellite equipment at the time. We'd hired some satellite equipment to broadcast some live video with this videographer. So I used his satellite to send back still images. So in that sense, it was an amazing tool to keep an expedition website live. As a photographer, I'd push the button and have to wait half a second before it took the picture, because there was such long shutter lag. 
So I had to anticipate what was going to happen quite a long time before I pushed the button. So that wasn't enjoyable. And the pictures, the file sizes were tiny, and that pushed me even further away from being attracted to it as a medium. And when I did eventually get a 35mm SLR, I started to enjoy digital photography again, but there was something missing from it. It took a long time for digital cameras to reach the standard and the quality of image that they are now. And obviously, living on a diet of medium format transparency film and seeing the scans, the drum scans of those, there's almost no comparison. Today, there's, they are different mediums completely. It's like comparing a watercolour with an oil painting. You can't really compare the two, I don't think. They, have their, they both have their place even today, I would argue. That's an interesting comparison. I've not heard that one before. It, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I feel that they have a different feel to the image. I think we've we've gone through a transition period where for quite a long time people would say, oh, you know, it's it's like the CD or vinyl comparison and you're never going to make digital look like film and, oh, and I don't like it because it lacks that emotion. You know, you look at maybe someone like Tom Stoddart's work in black and white film and it's just got such an incredible feel to it. But then we seem to have got through that and now people will have accepted that digital is digital and film is film and, and the two don't have to be the same. And they can both be their own valid mediums. Uh, and it, it feels like there was that conversation in the early stages of digital, and now that seems to have been completely forgotten. Yeah, that's interesting. I still think today you get the best, highest resolution digital camera and compare that with a, a scan, a print. I'm talking about the printed form now because that's the end, the end result of both of those. And you look at a print from a perfectly exposed scan transparency, and there's something about the quality of a print from analog has a different kind of a better quality better is obviously subjective than it's the feel isn't it i mean it, it, yeah. it has a, it's almost like one has more depth than the other but maybe less resolution I wonder whether it's almost the slight imperfections of film are what make it, you know, you take that Japanese principle of, you know, repairing something that's broken. If you've got something that's not quite perfect, its perfection lies in its imperfection, if that makes sense. Uh, and, yeah. and the way the way the tones roll off in a, in a film image compared to digital, digital is very linear. And yes, you can put curves on and, and, make it look a lot like film but it's never quite the same film just has that inherent imperfection i guess yeah there's, a, there's another answer which i was talking to a neuroscientist about digital and film just having a bit of a rant at some, at some meeting somewhere about the two of them and his theory was that because digital is a pattern in the human brain we respond to patterns that's how brains have evolved and in the analog image there's no pattern so one is logical and one isn't. And maybe the brain responds to something that we don't even see that is imperceivable. That might account for the difference in the quality, that, the quality of image that we see in a digital versus analog print. I think they're both here to stay, which I'm quite relieved about romantically. Film hasn't died a death like everyone thought it was, in the same way that painting hasn't died since the advent of photography. Uh, do you still yeah. take a film camera with you on expedition? can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> <laughs> so returning to your, your career, um, what was your first big break as a photographer? There's two parts to answer that. One is I entered a writing competition to join an expedition in 1993 to join an expedition to Everest to put up the first woman on top of Mount Everest to celebrate the 40th anniversary. In doing so, I met a travel journalist called Paul Deegan, 
who said my essay was rubbish, uh, but I could take a picture and that would, would be useful for the expedition. Nothing came of that until nothing came of that until 1999 when Paul Deegan said he was organising a group of friends to go and climb some unclimbed mountains on the border of Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and China. He'd got a permit for this place that I'd never even heard of. I didn't even know, didn't even I had never heard the word Kyrgyzstan until that conversation. So I sold everything I had. At the time, I was doing some sort of special effects colour printing as a business in London, using lith printing and lith plates and using animation techniques to construct composite images in the dark room, uh, which is quite technical. And I loved it, but it did keep me in the dark, literally, all day, every day. And so I sold everything I had, including all my camera equipment, in the hope I was going to get a sponsor to go on that expedition because I couldn't afford it. And I scraped enough money together to buy my plane ticket for that expedition. And then I thought, because we were going to be the first people to climb those mountains, that was a great selling point for any photography like photographic equipment supplier. So I approached my mayor and said, I'm going here. No one's climbed to these places before. It's going to be the most epic adventure. And bear in mind, this is pre-the word blog and pre-social media days. And they went, yes, they, they gave me every single piece of equipment I asked for, which was the best thing I could ever have wished for as a photographer, because I got my favourite camera at the time, which was a Mamiya Pro TL645, with 220 roll film backs, uh, 35mm lens, a 90mm uh, lens, a 150mm lens, an extender. Fuji gave me all the film I needed. And then two weeks before we used to depart, uh, Motorola said they would sponsor the expedition if we took their satellite telephone with us because they'd launched the first commercially available satellite telephone. And the deal was the journalist Paul Deegan would report back every week to the Guardian newspaper and explain what had happened. And of course, there was no way to send back images back then. It was just a written post in a newspaper. And when I came back, I got my pictures edited and scanned and they went out to the media. And then I suppose that was my first big break. And then I realised there was a mechanism as a photographer to get corporate sponsors to engage with an expedition if it has some social value in exchange for pictures for their corporate social responsibilities. And that seems to work quite well uh, since 1999. I suppose that's quite an interesting discovery that a lot of people go through when they're starting out in photography. They, they begin and they try and figure out how they're going to earn money or, or get places and, and do things and, and making that leap seems to take people time you obviously made that leap quite early with a pretty uh, impressive expedition in terms of these extreme and remote locations you've been to is there anything that anywhere that you say really stands out would it be that first big expedition that sticks in your mind or is there somewhere else you've been that that just you know captures you still uh, that first expedition was important for me as a photographer because it meant I could take those non-commercial pictures and show them to travel magazines and get travel commissions, which is where my heart was at the time, was travel and expeditions. And because I had access to all areas past to a unique place, I think that was really an advantage over, say, if I'd taken myself off and gone to... Mongolia, for example, and photographed some eagle hunters, which, you know, there's the whole flow of people going there and going behind me. The advantage of that one expedition was it was nearly impossible to anyone to come behind me and go there and take the same pictures and share that story. So that was a huge advantage in that the pictures were unique. And that is a really, really hard thing to do in photography, is to go to a place and bring back some unique pictures. 
So that's, those pictures were important because of the geographic location, not because of the images I came back with, because they were just pictures of mountains and uh, Kyrgyz nomads, which nomads are nomads, interesting things. It's just the geography, really, that, that brought home the uniqueness of those photographs. And in line with that, I went in 2001, a couple of years later, to a village called Padam in the Indian Himalaya. So my proudest pictures, which Travel Photographer of the Year uh, thought were good enough to be awarded, I think it was, I can't remember. Anyway, they won a category in Travel Photographer of the Year, and that was partly because I think the pictures were special because no one has seen that, those kinds of pictures before. Again, because the geography is so unknown, to get to this little village, you had to ski and stumble and walk and crawl 150 miles up a frozen river in the, in the Indian Himalaya. And I have found that the further away... The, you get from civilization and the more effort you make to get as far away from people as possible, the more interesting scenarios crop up automatically. So in some respects, that's half the battle won in terms of getting a great photograph is being in a place that is unusual. And then things just pop up in front of you that you don't necessarily have to plan for. That's the magic of travel and photography is when you make the effort to be somewhere, things start happening automatically. And I think that's reflected in a lot of the photographs I've accumulated over the years. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. It's not something that people often think about. You know, they, oh, I've got a camera, I've got a ticket somewhere. I'm a travel photographer, but it, there is so much more to it than that. And you're doing photography in extreme climates, which must be challenging for many reasons. What role does fitness play in this? Um, and have you experienced any fitness issues which have limited what you can do? I'm thinking particularly about things like frostbite, which must be a real hazard when working with cameras in freezing climates. Yeah, fitness you have to be... <laughs> I'm a bit older now, and I'm realising that I have to work harder to stay fitter and do what I do, because you know, even photographing a wedding, I've done a couple of weddings in the last few weeks, and I'm not fit, and I feel the physical effects the day after of photographing a wedding, for example. Who would have thought that a wedding was... <laughs> Physical, but it is, you know, you're lunging around all over the place. It's like a 12-hour Pilates session, holding a three-kilogram camera in different awkward positions and running around. So, yeah, I'm actually feeling it now. But <laughs> joking aside, it is a, it's a very physical activity. Once you leave civilization, you're responsible for getting everything you have with you, your food and your equipment, over all sorts of obstacles and through all sorts of obstacles. And specifically in the Arctic, you have to be physically robust, otherwise you can't do your job. And you have to you have to be cold, that's yes, unavoidable. Cold fingers, cold feet, cold toes, cold face, cold core temperature. You have to be driven by something other than where you are. And I think that's given me a massive advantage over my fellow teammates in that there's always something to do because polar expeditions are pretty boring things. But being a photographer in those places... There's always something to do. There's always something to photograph. Even in bad weather, even when there's no weather, <laughs> there's always something to do. So always my brain is active and I'm very, very, very lucky that I'm driven by photography with everything I do. And that, it sounds a little bit hippie-ish, but <laughs> having that role mentally keeps me warm because there's some bizarre psychological influencing fact in that I'm always looking, always seeking the photograph, always going through my to-do list in my head of photographs that need to be taken. And it makes me happy. It actually makes me happy. If I didn't have photography, I think I'd be quite a sad, depressed person. 
you know, I do get a lot from what photography gives me in return for the process of taking pictures. The whole process of looking for a photograph and going out and finding it and taking it and then seeing it, that is a massive, great, positive influence on my entire being, no matter where I am. Sorry, but I'm pretty sure that if you could take that into a package, you could probably use it as a kind of therapy for people who are depressed or feeling they have nothing to do or no sense of purpose in life. I mean, this this goes into so many different directions. I think my first thought to that is there's a, a proverb or a saying that a man with a with a why can withstand any how. So if you've got a reason to do something, if you've got a, a drive to be somewhere, you'll go through any obstacle to get to it. So being cold and uncomfortable and, and tired and whatever, you've still got that drive to take the pictures to see see what you're doing. Into your second point, I mean, art therapy is a massively growing uh, arena. And, you know, uh, I think Chris and I know, know people that have been on death's door literally by their own hand, but photography has saved them and, and brought them back from the edge because it's given them that purpose, that creative desire. It's something that I, I think it, it binds people in a, in a certain way mm. or grounds them if, or centers them. Or. Yeah. And if I can take that to another level, if you can humor me for a couple of minutes, mm -hmm. my next project, which I've been working hard on for the last five years in the background is to go and photograph the last pieces of the oldest ice on the Arctic Ocean. And these pieces of ice, they're not just incredible, beautiful objects, utterly unique to that place. A, they've never been documented photographically before because they're so hard to get to. And also, in the last 10 years, they've been decimated by global warming. And so no one until recently has understood exactly just how important they are in the global climate. And these pieces of ice, they're a keystone of the ecosystem that cools the planet. And without them, we will, we will have lost the fight with climate change. And in the past five years, as a photographer, the drive to go back out there and document these pieces of ice before they've gone has taken over my whole life, especially this year. I've almost put my other photography to the side, sacrificed everything, everything to make plans and raise funds to go out back into the Arctic Ocean to document these things. And knowing full well that it's not going to be possible for anyone to do this job after I've gone, because they won't be there. And that in itself, as a photographer, is, a, is such a powerful, almost feel like I'm possessed by something to go and document these things before they've, they've become extinct. And that puts me in a very fortunate position as a photographer in many ways. And it does feel like my whole photographic career has brought me to this point where, like, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, where when I pass away, I'll have left something that's valuable to society, as you know, as, as is the case with a lot of amazing photographers like Tom Stoddart and James Nashway and Don Cullen, those guys who've gone out and documented stories and brought them back at great risk themselves and left a legacy of the worst and best parts of humanity in their photography. And that's, for myself, having spent my life doing photography and nothing else, I think that's a huge privilege, even though it's come at a huge price. It's interesting. I mean, it, it, it goes back to something you were talking about before. I'd wanted to pick up again now. You, you were talking about like the uniqueness of a location. You're still, despite the fact that the world is getting seemingly smaller and smaller and smaller and, and people are more and more able to travel, you're still finding these unique places and unique stories and, and unique things to photograph that maybe other people can't or won't go and do. And how do you find that? Is that getting harder? Where does the inspiration come from? Where do the ideas come from? Where do you, you pick up this, well, these places, I guess? 
there's a bit of serendipity involved. You need a quite a nice slice of serendipity for a picture to happen. It's not just skill. There is a certain amount of luck in every photograph, I would argue. Well, all the greatest photographs, there's always a little piece of luck involved in there. Mm-hmm. I think I, you know, I've never made any money from photography, particularly. Never, really, It's never really given me any stability, except it's something I've always wanted to do. And I feel quite sorry for people who don't have a sense of purpose and have never found something they really want to do. And I think that fact alone has taken me to, into places and, met, and meetings, because life is meeting, with people who have been outside of my, my normal social sphere. And then those people have connected me to other people. And the whole process has an endpoint, which is a photograph. From the starting point, it's a conversation and it's meeting people. So I think the kind of photographs I've done and, and what have, what's pulled me away from the security of a steady income has been the drive to go and find new places and, and unusual events. I think what's in my head is something that is, I just want to go away as far as possible and bring photographs back that have some meaning. And if you look for things, you find them. That's, that's interesting to hear your motivations. Um, you know, many people starting photography say, oh, 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 my ambition is to have a picture in Nat Geo or something like that. But you're actually thinking on a, on a different level. I find that quite fascinating, don't you, David? Mm, very much so. I, I mean, I think plays into uh, something else we were going to ask you, which is, you know, a lot of people would like to get into this adventure or extreme photography. And it's almost like you're providing a, a blueprint of how to do it. If you, I mean, if you had a bit of advice to give someone that was trying to follow, maybe not entirely in your footsteps, because some of the places you've been to, they're not going to get to. But if, if someone wanted to try and follow your footsteps, how would how would they go about it? What would you tell them to do? I would say do not take a single step forward unless you've decided already that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. Don't even go near it. If you're not prepared to commit everything to it, then don't do it. Sounds like a mantra for life, actually, doesn't it? No, <laughs> as much no. as anything. <laughs> you're never going to be good at anything unless you really want to do it, are you? Yeah, yeah, very much so. You know, I don't want to go out there with a gun and kill people, but some people do, and I'm sure those are the best fighters in the world, the best trained soldiers, because they want to go out there and their sense of purpose is for their country, and they just want to do whatever it takes to do that. So I'm never going to beat that person. So I would take one step into that field, and I wouldn't last two days. That's an extreme example of wanting to do something and researching and having something inside you that is not something you can teach people. It's either there or it's not. You know, everyone wants to be a photographer. Not everyone, but, you know, you sit down at the table and, oh, I want to be a photographer. What sort of camera shall I get? If you want to be a photographer, go and be a photographer. Don't try and be anything else at the same time. Okay. You know, I wouldn't try I mean, be a brain surgeon and also a professional horse rider, would I, for example? you got to pick one and do it, and nothing else is going to distract you from that. And would you say that applies to all forms of photography, or is it specific to the real extreme adventure stuff that you're doing? Oh, that's a good question, Chris. Cranky. Because if it applies to wedding photography, then you have a new little side business model. I'll be expecting Martin Hartley's three-hour wedding fitness yoga sessions to be. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, it's a a downloadable DVD. (laughs) No, I I love wedding photography because it's a social documentary. I don't understand why wedding photographers get such a bad time. Mind you, there's a lot of crap wedding photographers, too many of them. Thousands. That's why they get a bad time. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. But wedding, you know, photographing a wedding is the easiest festival in the world to photograph. Everyone expects a photographer to be there. 
you can do whatever you like on the day. If you've briefly to be able to get in mind that that's what you're going to be doing. Basically, it's a it's a free pass to document human behaviour. How often do you get that? Delivered on the plate every day. So in that in that respect, it's a great. I'm going to undo wedding photographers now. Um, it's a great training ground for social documentary photography. It really is. So that's that's possibly the most inspiring thing I've ever heard said about wedding photography. I love it. I love it. But going back to Chris's question, which is a difficult one to answer, and I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I think if you love photography and you're driven by it, by something that hasn't been taught, if there's something inherent in you as a photographer, then you can turn your hand to any kind of photography. Cars, weddings, um, adventure, portraits. Because seeing photography, seeing how a photograph will look before you take it, you can turn that skill to anything. If you're a carpenter, you can build a nice shed like the one that Chris is in, or you can build a nice piece of furniture, or you can build a boat. If you're interested in the process, you can make anything happen with your photography. I would argue that. I would agree 100%. Yeah. But if, you know, if you're a specialist, you're a specialist because that's all you're interested in. Um, you take some um, extremely beautiful portraits and shots of people that you've met on your travels. Um, many of them seem to have a painterly quality. Do you have an art background or is this a style you've deliberately developed and achieved? Okay, another curveball question from Chris Coe. I don't think, I've never really planned to have a style. It's just evolved over time. I haven't tried to be a certain way with the pictures. Before I, when I applied to do a national diploma in photography at Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design, I was told that because I didn't have an art background, I'd have to go away and do an arts foundation course uh, in art and design and then reapply the following year to do a national diploma, which is a two-year course in photography. And I was absolutely thrilled that I had to go and do an arts foundation course in art and design and learn all sorts of art techniques before then going stepping into photography. And then to my disappointment, my application got accepted. So I missed the year of art and design. And I think even going, if I could rewind the clock back, I would have said, no, I'll come and join photography in a year's time and study art and design. So I think those skills I would have learned on that course would have put me in good stead and I maybe would have progressed further faster if I had more understanding of art and the construct of what a picture is. Going back to the portraits, that is just an accident. It's just applied all the things I like about photography, which is light and shade. And when I'm taking someone's portrait with flash equipment, I try and use flash equipment to put shadows in places that would not be there before. I don't try and see where the light falls maybe that's the reverse approach to portrait photography trying to put shadows in and not not light maybe that's just a, an accident of why they have a painterly quality you do you know having looked through your work particularly looking through your portraits you do have a very strong style and actually you've kind of answered a question i had about it which is obviously you use flash which is one something a lot of people don't understand two something a lot of people therefore don't use and three something people don't often take on expedition but you seem to very deliberately take it you know almost looking at your work you're compelled to have a flash with you and i'm wondering where that came from where did that love of flash for portraits come from because i, I meet very few people that have that same mindset particularly on, on location flash i did backfire on one occasion i was i'll just tell you a little story quickly before i answer that I was asked to do some portraits of a polar explorer in Antarctica for a quite a high-profile brand. And I thought, right, I want to do something different here. I'll take my flash equipment down to Antarctica and do my usual style down there. And when I shoot with flash, I try and make it look like it's natural daylight. 
And sometimes that the effect you get is having a portrait of a person in the foreground that looks like they've been shot in a studio with a background that's been dropped in afterwards. And that's not always an advantage. I'm not even saying it's ever an advantage, but it adds a certain feel to a picture. So I did that, brought the pictures back, and the client said, Martin, do you have anything not as good as this? Because it's showing up all our other photography that we've got. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, it's, do you have anything that's, you know, a bit rubbish? Because, or something like that. I've got the email somewhere. So... Usually when I take a, a shot with with flash, I do one before so I can see what's happening in the background and what's happening on the person and then I know where to put the shadows. And I found a couple of shots that were test shots before the flash had gone off and I sent those over and, oh, these are perfect, they're brilliant, thank you, these are amazing. I cannot tell you the sinking feeling I had after that. So I try not to take flash on expeditions anymore or try and do that again because it's just interrupts the flow of expectation. And once you do that, it doesn't always pay off. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure it does. Yeah, it kind of does. I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued because I'm a big fan of flash on location. And, and actually, one of the things I, I work for a lot of the time when I'm working with Flash is to make it look like it's a studio shot but on location and that kind of like the, almost the two images put together like it could be dropped in but it's not, it's done on location. That's something I actually work towards because I find that I like the aesthetic and I think I find clients that, that appreciate that. But I, I understand what you're saying. I've had clients look at it and go, well, why did you take it on location? You could have done it against a green screen and we could have put a background in. Well, photography is quite a terrifying prospect for most people. Once they pick up a camera and switch it from automatic to manual, then their whole world implodes into they realise actually it is a skill. And I think when you introduce flash on top of that, then the levels of ter- you know fear just... If you want to be good at it, it must, well, not must, happen for me. I was scared of lighting for maybe 10 years. Even with tungsten, I didn't know how to light things, and I was just scared of turning one light on to photograph anything. So I avoided it for as long as I could. And then there came a point where, commercially, I could not avoid using lighting. And then it went from tungsten to flash. And it's a long process to learn how to light. It's not something you can learn in a workshop in an hour. It really isn't. It's... It is a bit of a dark art, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> I mean, in, in terms of how you prepare for an expedition and like, okay, so you're, you're not taking flash now, but how do you go about preparing for an expedition? How do you decide what you're taking with you? Make sure you've got everything that you need to come back with the pictures that you come back with. How, you know, walk us through that process. Well, I'm terrible. I'm, a, I'm the worst person in the world to answer that well. So I just take everything <laughs> I can and carry so for an Arctic expedition, let's talk about the Arctic because that's I'm the big I'm its, I'm its biggest fan and that's the most difficult place I think there is to take pictures because of the cold and the humidity and the length of time you have to be there and the weight restrictions and the lack of daylight to power things with solar. So you have to really pare down what you can carry and what you actually need and those things sometimes don't match up. So I'll take more of the stuff I don't need just in case because you can't... <laughs> You can't get a courier to go and deliver another camera body to you up there by airplane or anything. So I'll take, for, say, a 90-day trip, I'll take 16 batteries, all fully charged. I'll take two SLR bodies, and I will take 35mm SLR bodies. Two 24mm lenses. That's my go-to lens, because you can do anything with that. Portrait, landscape, an action photograph. And a couple of times, I've taken a 70 to 200, 200mm lens, just one, and I've taken an 80 millimetre lens as well. 
and probably used both those things twice, but to great effect. But the effort required to carry those two things, all those things, is quite quite big. But I'd rather have those things with me than not. It's a bit like going out with 20 quid in your pocket, thinking, is that enough? When I should really brought 50. It's that kind of psychological barrier. Um, flashcards, there's no way to back up anything. So I'll, I can't remember how many flashcards take. Enough to take about 10,000 frames over 90 days. Nothing gets backed up. And there's only one copy of every single picture. The batteries, they don't lose their charge just because it's cold but they will lose their charge really quickly if you use them when they're cold. So I've got a special pocket on my trouser leg to keep the batteries warm because your legs produce a lot of heat in the cold. And if you use a battery when it's warm, its lifespan will be much greater than if you use it when it's cold. And even then, if the battery does go cold, I'll warm it up to see if there's any charge left in, put it back in the camera. So the, the battery doesn't stay in the camera when I'm not using it. And the camera doesn't stay in a flashy, expensive camera case. It just stays around my neck and my shoulder the entire time. So it's ready, to one thing. And two, it doesn't need to be in a bag where it's going to feel like too much effort to take the bag off and stop and open the bag and put my hand in and find the camera and pull it out and close the bag and put it back on. And then you're just losing minutes and seconds and precious moments then. Although you can neither confirm or deny that you use film, would a, an all-manual film camera make its way into the bag just as a backup? Absolutely, yes. I took a Leica MP on a trip in 2010 and in 2011 onto the Arctic Ocean as my backup camera. And I found myself defaulting towards using that than my Nikon DSLR, only because of the romance of shooting film up there and because it's such a beautiful thing to have in your hands. Looking at those pictures from that MP, I took some black and white, HP5, I think, for the DSA, and I shot some ProView 100. That was always rated 200. And looking at those in the light box makes me realise the massive difference in a low contrast environment between digital and transparency. So this is going to sound so boring to most people. The only way to archive stuff is either shoot it on film or get a print made. Digital stuff is going to wander off into the ether very quickly. So that's another reason to take a film camera whenever you go to somewhere special, for sure. I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing the sales of secondhand film cameras going through the roof right now. Students are hoovering them up all over the place, apparently. They are. I spoke to yeah, they are. Metro in London, and they've got loads of students coming in with 35mm uh, C41 and E6, which is great, I think. For photography, that's a really great thing to keep the film alive. If the next generation want to use film cameras, then that's amazing. More, more power to them. Okay, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap this up with quite a big question. You've already told us about your next project, which is this uh, ancient Arctic ice, which sounds incredibly interesting. But you said that you're getting a little older and it's a little harder to be as fit and you have to work a bit harder. Do you think you'll ever give up the extreme adventures or is this just going to be in you? You know, are we going to be prizing a camera frozen out of your fingers somewhere down the line? Um, I think my body will make that decision for me. But one thing is, so yes, the answer to that is yes, you know, because it phys- it's a very physical thing going on to extreme places. It's hard on your brain. It's hard on your heart because you're away from all things you love. And it's hard on your body. And it takes longer to prepare and longer to recover. And it feels hard at the time. I'm dreading this next expedition because it's going to be the most painful thing in all respects ever. One thing is for sure, though, I will never retire from photography. I'll always keep taking pictures as long as my hands can hold onto a camera or can bother to get out my chair and take pictures. So that's one thing I know already. Incredibly fascinating. And, and yeah, thank you very much for telling us, well, telling us your story and, and kind of taking us through what you do. And, and there's been so many interesting things in here that I think, uh, I think the listeners are going to get an awful lot out of. So thank you very much. 
hope so. No one's put off by photography because it is today in today's world. Like hundred years ago, being a photographer was a unique thing, wasn't it? If I was walking around maybe 120 years ago, I'd probably never meet a photographer. Now they're all over the bloody place. So, you know, the competition for the next generation is really hard. So I feel for them in that they're going to have to work harder than I did to make their niche. And I'd echo David's comments. I think I've known you for quite a long time and this conversation has taken us in directions I didn't expect to go. And I, I found it really, really interesting and inspiring. So thank you very much, Martin. Thanks, Chris. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you very much.